Well, good morning. Lots going on here. Excited for the opportunities, the many opportunities we have for fellowship and especially for worship. And I hope you will join us on Wednesday, this Wednesday. Now, this morning we continue. We've been looking at the days of creation. And you may be tempted to think that creation or the creation account has, has finished. And it, of course, has not. We know that the scripture teaches us, God teaches us, that he created the world, the heavens and the earth, and he did that in six days, but he rested on the seventh. And so as we've been looking at the days of creation, uh, we've looked at the first through the six days of creation, but now we have an opportunity to look at the seventh day of creation. And it's important to recognize that just because the creation had been finished, that God had finished creating the heavens and the earth, it's still the seventh day, and we still need to look at that because there's a purpose in why God did this over seven days and not just over six. And as we look at the word today, we're going to look at two sections, actually just a couple of verses, but first we're going to look at verses uh, one through three of chapter two, where we're going to talk about the seventh day. And then in the first part of verse four, we have an opportunity to look at just exactly how the book, the entire book of Genesis, is organized. So we'll look at those two things. But before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you, as always, in need of your wisdom, your mercy, your grace, in need of your presence, your wisdom, your understanding, your knowledge, that we might truly understand and apply your word to our hearts. We all have needs, physical, spiritual, emotional, But perhaps the most important need is for us to understand that you desire to have a relationship with us. And that's really what the seventh day is all about. Not only did you create all things, and on the sixth day you created man, but then you established the seventh day as a day for mankind to experience the relationship with you in a way that they don't on the other six days of the week. So give us that wisdom. Give us that understanding. Give us insight, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it may not seem like much, just a few verses, yet in these few verses, these three verses here, we learn something about the way that God works and the way he created the heavens and the earth, that is, all of the universe. For we read in verse 1 of chapter 2 in the book of Genesis, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, the key word there is rest. It comes up twice. This idea of rest, it's a day of rest. I was looking at how the names of the days of the week came into being. And there's a a long history of the way that we refer to Sunday through Saturday. A lot of it comes from Latin, but then ultimately some of it in our English comes from Scandinavian and, and Germanic. But without getting into all that, I looked at why we call Sunday Sunday. And actually, that's more of a pagan reference. In Latin, it's, you know, Domingo is the Spanish, but in Latin, it's Dominica. It's the idea of dominion because it's named after the Lord's day, his dominion, the Lord's. 
So in our language, we don't have that, but in the Latin languages, they do. This idea of dominion, God's dominion, his day, the Lord's day. And we would probably be better to refer to it as that than just Sunday, which actually is a reference to the pagan gods of the sun from the ancient cultures. But as we look at this, the heavens and the earth were completed. The triune God finished creating the universe in six days, and so this refutes any evolutionary system or theory that relies on natural processes and universal laws. By that I mean that he created all these things in a very short period of time. We're talking about six literal days. There's, there's really no other way to interpret the first chapter of the book of Genesis. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. Those are references to actual days. And of course, a day would be an entire rotation of the earth. We know it is a, very close to 24 hours. But the point is not how long God took to create the heavens and the earth, because he could have done it in 24 nanoseconds. He could have done it in six nanoseconds. It's not that it took long or short. There's a principle in the seven-day creation that runs through the entire books of the Bible, all of them. And it's important to know that because that principle of the sevens, we saw it in the book of Revelation in our study there. We see the understanding of the Sabbath throughout the Old Testament. We see that seven-day concept comes up over and over again. So at this point on the sixth day, creation is complete, and it's not a continuing creation. That's so important. With the exception of like a divine miracle where Jesus prayed and the loaves and the fishes were created essentially out of nothing, aside from those miraculous divine moments, we have to understand that creation was finished on the sixth day. The triune God ceased from creating the universe. So what did he do? He rested. And you're thinking, well, was God tired? Did he need to rest like we need to rest? No, that's not the point. It's not even the purpose of rest. It's important to understand scientifically that the universe is not now being created. There are creative processes that were put in motion when God created the heavens and the earth, but it's not as if it's being created and we're still in the creation. That was finished in six days. In fact, it's being conserved. Scientifically speaking, the universe is not being created, it's being conserved. And this anticipates some, some modern scientific laws that we're aware of that we observe through science. For example, the laws of thermodynamics. So the first and the second laws of thermodynamics, and if you've ever taken a science class and hated it, you'll hate the next minute. But the first law of thermodynamics states that no matter or energy is now being created or destroyed. There will come a day when it will be destroyed. Heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus tells us, but his word will never pass away. There was a time in creation when it was being created over six days. And since the seventh day, it is being conserved. No energy or matter is being created or destroyed. All the heavens and the earth that God created when he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, when he created time, the elements of creation, and the space to create in, since that time and that process of six days, all of the matter of the universe is being conserved. It may be changed, transformed through chemical processes to some degree, but it's all still here. What you see is what we got. 
Understand that. It's very important. Science testifies to that truth, and the Bible teaches that truth. Now, the second law of thermodynamics teaches us this, that all existing matter and energy is proceeding irreversibly toward ultimate equilibrium. A lot of big words there. And all cessation of processes. So what that means is we are heading towards a moment of chaos. That is, the order of the universe is is coming undone. Not the matter or the energy, but the order of the universe is slowly, through entropy, becoming less organized. Okay, that's the scientific observations in nature that mankind makes today. Why is that important? Because the creation account is not in conflict with scientific observation. Scientific observation has looked at what creation is and testifies to what the Bible teaches it is. That's very important truth. All right? You don't need to think of this as a fairy tale and science is the truth. No, science is the observation of the biblical truth. Amen? And that's why I went to the trouble to show you that, because many times people of science will dispute the creation account, saying it has no foundation in science. That is not true at all. In fact, quite the contrary. But notice, the heavens and the earth were completed. As we've said, they were completed. And then there's this seventh day. Again, we refer to it as Sunday, but it's, it's the, or the, or the, the Sabbath is the sixth day. The first day of the week is really the Sunday. But we, in, in the church, we kind of think of that in that way. But we have an opportunity to meet with God on Sunday. So whether you start the week on a Monday or on a Sunday, there is a seventh day. Now, for the Jews, their seventh day was the Saturday, right? The Sabbath. But the seventh day for us is a principle. It's an opportunity. The Lord's Day, we call it. So whether you're looking in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you may have a different day of worship, depending on when you start the week. And throughout the world cultures, this has been the case. So it's not important so much which is the seventh day, but that there is a seventh day, and we as Christians celebrate it sometimes as the first day of the week or the seventh day of the week. It really depends on your perspective. But the principle is the same. Now, the triune God made the seventh day a blessed day. His rest on this day is not continuing. The verb that's used is in the past tense. He rested, but he is no longer resting. Understand that. He rested on the seventh day, but he's no longer resting. That is, God the Father was working, working, a work of God, from, from the beginning of the creation week to the day of rest. But then remember, from the fall of man to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has been working. Is God working? Amen. So to think, well, he rested and that was it. He just kind of stopped and he doesn't do anything. He's not interactive at all with his universe would be wrong. That's not what the day of rest implies. That was a moment of rest and it's repeated for us weekly. Again, depending on which day you consider your seventh day or your Sabbath, if you want to call it that. Now, God the Father was working from the fall all the way to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But God the Son was working from the incarnation to the cross. Was Jesus working from the incarnation to the cross? Yes, not only working to survive, but working on our behalf, ultimately dying on the cross for our sins. And of course, God the Holy Spirit has been working, notice that tense there of the verb, compound tense, has been working from Pentecost until now, even today, in our world. Do you understand that? 
that God was working, the sun was working, had worked, finished that work. It is finished. Amen. And now the Holy Spirit is doing the work. But God didn't just give up after six days and stop working. But for that one day, he did. He rested. Well, everything was good. It was very good. There was no sin in the world. Everything was just right. So there was no no need to work on man's behalf. There was no need to accomplish any work of salvation. Not yet. But once that changed, God began working and is still working to this day, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I would give you that understanding because some people believe, especially the ancient Greeks, Aristotle believed that this concept that God sort of put the universe in motion and then he rested and he hasn't really gotten involved since. And that would be wrong. As Christians, we know better. Amen? Okay, well, that's a little bit about that. But his blessing that he mentions here. He blessed that day. Notice, I'm going to go back and look at it. It says in verse 3, and God blessed the seventh day. Well, what does that mean? He blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Those are two different concepts, but let's start by looking at this idea of a day being blessed. Understand that the blessing on this day that God communicates here doesn't apply to this present age, this age of sin and death. We don't experience the blessing of the seventh day like that, like they did on that seventh day. How could we? Remember I said God rested because his work of creating had been finished, but he rested on that seventh day. He also blessed it. It was a blessed day, but remember, it was a very good day. It was called a good day and then a very good day. Look around. Okay, if you want to call today our seventh day of rest, any day, is there ever a day when you can look around and say, boy, the world is good or very good? Could you even say, while we experience God's blessings in this fallen world, that any day has been, quote unquote, blessed to that degree? You can't because we live in a fallen world. So though we keep the Sabbath holy, that at any given moment in this world, A day of rest is not blessed the way that God blessed that first seventh day. That tells us that this was a very special day. Blessed by God because there was no sin. God had no work to do. There was nothing, no work of God necessary because man was perfect, made the way that God designed him. The universe was working perfectly. Have you ever had a moment like that? A moment? It it doesn't last very long, right? The kids are sleeping, they're quiet, your favorite show is on television, the phone doesn't ring, everything's, and you say, oh, only if life could be like this all the time. And then one of the kids wakes up, the phone rings, or the phone rings and wakes the kid up, something happens, everything changes, or someone knocks on your door, or all of a sudden the lights go out, and you realize, oh, we're not living in a perfect world. It's kind of funny how we seek equilibrium in our lives. We, 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 as human beings, most of us want that moment of rest. Most of us want that moment of peace, right? You don't get up in the morning, on a Monday morning, and say, I really hope today's a crazy day. Everything goes off the rails at work, and, you know, there's a dumpster fire when I walk in the door, and I have three people quit, and no one gets up and says, that's the kind, of, that's what I would consider to be a restful day. No, the restful day is that perfect day, and wasn't the weather just perfect yesterday? And it seems to be very good today. As I've said before, August is looking very good. 
So on those days when we get up or you're on vacation and you're down the shore and you get up, the only thing you have to think about is what SPF sunscreen you're going to put on. Those might be considered blessed or good days. And even they pale in comparison to what this first seventh day must have been like. Why am I going to this extent? Pastor Tim, what are you making a big deal about? It's the seventh day. Relax. Because it represents heaven. It represents our eternal rest. It represents what we're looking forward to, rest, joy, that we will experience for all eternity. If you don't understand that, then you look at the seventh day and you think, okay, well, just day seven comes after day six. So what? Whether it's Saturday or Sunday, it's just the seventh day. No, it's so much more than that. Seven is the number of perfection, divine perfection, God's perfect completion, his plan. We are heading towards the seventh day metaphorically speaking, of all creation. Some people believe that there's a thousand years as a day and a day is a thousand years. I think we've kind of gone over that, but there were some people who used to believe that. And, and the idea was there's been a millennium after millennium and we're roughly into like the seventh millennium. And that represents the millennium when Christ will come and establish his kingdom. I think it's a symbol. I don't think you should get out your calculators and try to map it out and sell books Based on these things, you're going to get yourself in trouble. As calendars are tricky things, and counting days 7,000 years ago might be a little difficult, or 6,000 years ago. So all of that to say, though, it represents our hope in Christ. We had that hope in the triune God, and then we blew it, or at least our parents did. And once they did, that hope needed to be restored. And that's the work of salvation that has continued ever since. But in this moment, this brief moment in time, on this seventh day, everything was just as it should be. And so when you think about heading into eternity, where God told us himself, Jesus told us, in heaven, right, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it weren't true, I wouldn't have said it. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, that you might be there with me. That's the seventh day day promise. And that's what we celebrate on the Sabbath or our day of worship. That's what we celebrate on the seventh day. That's why we worship in that way, because we're looking forward to something that's very good, that's blessed and holy. I know we only see the symbol of it today, but still we should experience a degree of it in our lives. But he also made the day holy. That is set apart different. We've talked about how that day was blessed, the first seventh day, but it was also holy. And the word holy is different than blessed. It's set apart, different than the other six. There's a distinction between the other six and the seventh day of the week. There should be at least. There should be. God sanctified this day to benefit mankind, and he did so as a permanent institution. Sabbath was made for man, Jesus told us in Mark's gospel, not man for the Sabbath. It's a blessing to us. It's a day of holiness. It's a day of being set apart to God. And listen, something to remember is, unlike every other aspect of our calendars, this was not controlled by the celestial calendar. Days, the rotation of the earth. Months, the cycle of the moon. Seasons. Okay, seasons have to do with the equinox and the, and the, um, the invernal equinox and then the, um, help me out here, what am I talking about? Solstice. Solstice, thank you. I don't know why I couldn't get that word out of my brain. I shouldn't have had that decaf. 
solstice, the equinox, the elements of our Earth's rotation, the tilt, the axis, that determines our seasons. And then, of course, the orbit around the sun, our years. So that's part of the clockwork of God's creation, but not the week. It's a seven-day week. It has no reference whatsoever in the celestial heavens. There's nothing about it that you can perceive in creation. It is a command by God that supersedes creation. Do you understand that? Say yes. Okay. So just understand, it's not like a month. It's a week. It's a seven. And God created it. He made it holy. This was controlled by something very different. It was controlled by man's physical and spiritual need for a weekly day of rest. God knew that we shouldn't work more than six days without a day off. Can I hear an amen? Amen. All right. I'm good with that. Although I I read a recent proposal. Oh, it was in one of those states where people come up with all kinds of crazy proposals. Some blue state. Um, Actually, no, it was a purple state. I think it was Pennsylvania. And... uh, one of these legislators decided that they should change the work week from 40 to, I guess, like 32 hours or something like that. But nobody gets a salary decrease. You know, everybody still gets paid the same amount, but they get to work one less day. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds really good until you're the one writing the checks and trying to run a business, right? We like to mess with things. And over the, over the history of mankind, there were times where people worked six days, we happen to have a schedule around here as generally as you work five, and then you have two days off, one for worship, one for rest. But regardless, the principle is the same. You don't want to go more than a week without a day of rest. Now, if you are a person, a Christian here today, who works more than that, that would be more than God designed you to work. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but would everybody stand up? No, I'm just kidding. Of course I'm not going to do that. There's many of us who violate the Sabbath on a continual basis. We work too much. We think, well, if I work a little bit more, I'll make a little bit more money, and I'll be better off. I'll find that rest. We're looking for that rest. It doesn't come by violating the Sabbath. Now, I know that not everybody can take the Sabbath on the exact day that everyone else thinks they should. Some people are very religious about it being Saturday. Some people are like, well, we're Christians now. It's the Lord's Day Sunday. Some people say, well, I work on the weekends, and mine is a Monday. Hey, I'm a pastor. I work on Sundays. So clearly my Sabbath isn't Sunday. So I'll be the first one to tell you, you know, I need a Sabbath that works for me. Was man made for the Sabbath? Or was Sabbath made for man? So you don't want to become hyper-religious and legalistic about the Sabbath, but you want to practice it. So here's the challenge. By the way, this is so important that it made it into the top ten list in Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments. Keep holy. Holy, that word comes up again. Keep holy or separate the Sabbath day. Now, you can't make it blessed. Only God can bring us to that time of blessing where we're living in the Sabbath for all eternity. But you can make it holy. God said through through the scriptures, Peter tells us, be holy as I am holy. Be separate as I am separate. Be different as I am different in this world. You and I, we cannot excuse working seven days a week. It will kill you, but that's not even the reason not to do it. The reason to not violate the Sabbath is simple. God said so. Now, if I said, you shall not kill, you'd say, oh, amen, Pastor Tim. 
not commit adultery. Absolutely. Don't covet. Well, that's challenging, but I agree. Have no other gods, right? No graven images. All these wonderful commands that we know are for our, for our blessing, not bearing false witness. But then we get to keep holy the Sabbath day, and we kind of feel like, well, I'm a Christian. That's optional. I'm here to tell you it's not. All of those Ten Commandments are still in effect. This isn't to make you feel bad. What God is saying to you is he wants to give you rest. Rest. I want to talk a little bit about rest. And I want to start by reading a scripture you should be familiar with. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, that rest that God wants to cultivate into our lives and into our schedule, that rest is designed by God to take the form of a day, one day a week. And it's interesting because I've heard pastors talk about how, well, that, that's why you need to come to church. No, the, completely different conversation. It has nothing to do with coming to church has to do with you not working yourself to death. It really does. And I understand sometimes people will have a couple of jobs, and I, and I understand those things, but I just don't see any other way to say this. Don't be a Sabbath breaker. You're harming yourself and your family if you do. You're not helping. You need to be creative if your schedule doesn't allow you to take a particular day. You need to figure it out. You need to ask God for wisdom. You need to come to God and say, I know what your word says. Keep holy the Sabbath day. What does that mean for me? Maybe for you, it's half a Friday and half a Saturday. Or or, or maybe it's Sunday afternoon into Monday. Whatever it needs to be. I don't think it needs to be so important which day. There are whole religious sects built on this idea that it needs to be a Saturday or it has to be a Sunday. That's not important. But the principle is, are you setting apart a day that is holy to the Lord. And by the way, it's not so you can go out and work at a soup kitchen. It's, that's, it's for you to rest. And so God gave us an example. He, the creator of the universe, who is now constantly working in his creation, took a day off. I think if God, with all of his responsibilities, can do it, I really kind of think you can too. I think we can. I know we can. So, all of this seven-day week stuff was all about man's physical and spiritual need for rest. And we see the idea of rest, and, and in Hebrew, the word rest is so much more than taking a nap. Remember the parable of the talents, when Jesus said, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, or come and enjoy the, the, the presence, enjoy my, my presence, be with me, this time of celebration. All of these different ways to translate it can also be said, enter into your rest. Because that's what rest is in the Hebrew mind. It's joy. It's a time of celebration. It's spending time in the presence of God, with God. It's all of those things. Uh, my Bible, let me see how it, how it um, I think it was 25, right? I didn't have a bookmark in there. I thought I did. Um, the parable of the talents, there we go. Uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's the way the NIV says it. But enter into the joy of the Lord. Enter into your rest. The rest that Jesus promised if you come to him if you're weary and burdened. All right. 
I know. Pastor Tim, the horse is dead. Stop beating it. You know when I'm going to stop beating that horse? When people get the message. Too many of us seem to forget that this is still a command of God. It's so vitally important. And I want you to be blessed, and God wants you to be blessed, and you want to be blessed, but you got to, to receive the blessings of God, you have to obey God. And so you have to keep this day holy. What that means for you and what day that is, I don't think we need to become overly religious about. Because of Jesus' command that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Okay, so what God did is he incorporated the Sabbath into the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. In Exodus 20, he made this clear, and it was something that existed before the law, but what the law did was sort of codify it, and he picked a day, Saturday happened to be, we call it Saturday, the Sabbath day, for that rest, for that time of rest. It certainly preceded Israel, and it will continue eternally. When you look at the prophecies of Isaiah, the Sabbath principle never goes away. Just like his word, because it's in his word, the Sabbath never disappears. It's not like, oh, finally we're in heaven, we don't have to experience the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath is heaven, it's the rest, it's the fulfillment of the seventh day. Now the emphasis, again, on a seventh day, but not necessarily Saturday. In the church, when it first was founded and the Holy Spirit came upon the church, 120 believers gathered there in Jerusalem, what happened is the church looked at that and they said, well, Jesus rose again on the first day of the week, and the Holy Spirit came down upon the church on the first day of the week, and so they started to gather and experience the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Now, the Jews would probably still celebrate their Sabbath religiously, but the day of worship called the Lord's Day, or Domingo, as I've said in the Latin, from that idea of dominion, the Lord's Day, that became the Sabbath and really is for most of us today. It really is. But some people like to do Saturday. Okay, fine. Whatever it is you need to do, you do it. But keep holy that day. Now, we identify our weekly cycle as centering on really the first day of the week. Although I've seen calendars that put Monday as the first day of the week as well. So our whole life as Christians really revolves around Sunday. Is it wrong to say that? If you agree, say amen. Isn't Sunday like the, the high point of our week? Isn't it that moment when we come together for fellowship, not just rest and blessing, but worship as well? Should be. And you know, if you find yourself missing church a lot because you're working or doing things, and here's, a, here's one I'll get in trouble for, but so what? My parents had a very simple principle about Sundays. The Sabbath lasted at least until church was over. Because if I had a Little League game or any kind of Boy Scouting activity or anything, those things happened after church. What if the game started at 11 and church ended at 12? We were late. My parents told the coaches, we go to church on Sunday. We put our foot down. You know, if more Christians did that, they wouldn't schedule those games on Sunday morning or those tournaments. I'm going to say something to you. Do you have the faith to believe that if you stood up for what you believe and what the Bible says? And again, Sunday may not be for everyone, but let's just look at it from that perspective for a minute. If you went to the coach, if you went to the school, if you went to the tournament, you say, look, like Eric Little, remember that? Maybe we need to go back and watch Chariots of Fire again. 
He wouldn't run. He wouldn't compete. People were upset with him, but he wouldn't violate the Sabbath and his day of worship. If we, especially parents, teach our children this principle, when they get older, they're going to live it, or at least they might choose to. But if you start violating those principles now, what will happen, not might, they will not take these things seriously. That's how we got here. And that's why so many of these things are being scheduled on Sundays right now. Because Christians haven't stood up and said, no. You want, he, he pitches? Well, he's not pitching on Sunday, so figure it out. You know what would happen in these leagues? They would get together and say, you know what, I don't have a whole team on Sunday because a bunch of my kids are Christians and so I, I can't play games on Sunday. Well, you know, let's change the schedule. Ah, let them change, not you. Can I hear an amen? Listen, you're going to be upset when they're 18 and they make their own decisions and they start to decide to violate that Sabbath and they don't honor God and you'll have been the one that taught them to do so. That's pretty harsh. Still true. Take that to the Lord. Pray your way through that. Now, when we talk about a day of rest, a holy day, a day of holiness to God, it's important to know that he established this non-celestial, as I've mentioned already, memorial to the literal seven-day creation week. So our week, think about this, even the most ungodly person in, in the world understands the concept of a week. But every time they live and they schedule every week in seven days, which they do, they're actually testifying to God creating the heavens and the earth. Because there's no other reason why we would celebrate a seven-day week. It, It comes from God's creation. So think about that. Ask that very antagonistic person in love why they celebrate or why they practice a seven-day week. Why, why do they do that? Because in doing so, they're acknowledging God's creation and existence. They may not realize it, but that's what they're doing. I love that because when we look at our world, God is right at the center working on our behalf. And you need to understand that. Okay, so that's a lot of Sabbath stuff today, or if you will, seventh-day stuff. And again, I want to reiterate this whether you're talking about a Saturday, which in that case it's named after the pagan god Saturn. Okay, so that's not so good either. Uh, In the case of, again, back to Spanish, which I think gets this right, sabado, it's more the Sabbath. So depending on the culture, the names change. It seems like Spanish got it right, if you ask me. Just saying. But looking at it in English, these words don't even point to what they really should. Make sure your life is better than that. Now let's look at the first part of verse 4, and then we'll close. Now we read in the first part of verse 4 in Genesis 1, I'll turn there, a very important line, and you might think it really belongs with the next section, but it doesn't. It's actually the last line of this section. And it's because they put it, many times the Bible translators put it in the wrong section, that we miss it, and we fail to understand what it means and how it should be interpreted. This section from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2, verse 4, first part of verse 4, is the first section of the book of Genesis. We read, this is the account, so think of this as the, the byline, the, the, the end statement of the entire uh, section. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now doesn't that make sense? If you look at it as the first verse of the next section, it makes no sense. Because all it talks about there is the creation of man. 
This is the line at the end of an entire section that tells us how to interpret the entire book of Genesis. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay, it's the first occurrence of the formula, let's call it a formula, which marks the key subdivisions of this book. Moses uses the word, this is the account, toledoth in the Hebrew, and it means generations. It's ten times it's used in the book of Genesis. And by the way, this is where the book actually gets its name in Greek, Genesis. The Genesis is the Greek word. So we, get, we name the book after Toledoth in Hebrew, and it's right here. This is the account of, it's the word that names the book. The Septuagint renders it, that's the Greek, renders it Genesis. It's also translated genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first word or first verse of the New Testament. Each major division of the book of Genesis can be recognized by the recurring phrase, this is the account of, or one word in Hebrew, Toledoth or Genesis. In all except this very first section, the name of a specific patriarch is attached to that. This is the account of Adam. This is the account of uh, Jacob. This is the account. All those sections are, are lined out or lined up for us in that way. But it describes the generations of no person, this first section. It's not looking at the Toledoth or the generations or the genesis of a person, but rather the heavens and the earth, all of creation, the universe itself. We must conclude that God himself wrote or revealed this creation hymn, and it really is a hymn, to Moses. How else would Moses know? Was Moses there? No. Adam really wasn't there except for the beginning or part of the sixth day and the seventh. So God communicated this to us. This is more the word of God than any other portion of scripture, really, when you think about it, with the possible exception of the red letter edition of the New Testament, where you have Jesus's words. This, this is so scripture that to say it's not scripture is heresy. And yet so many Christians will do that. They'll look, well, you know, that's, that's just, they, they came up with, they had to come up with something. No, this was from God revealed and eventually made it to Moses. And it's the Toledoth or the genesis of the heavens and the earth. And we're told that in that concluding line. The phrase represents each of the writer's signatures. It's a signature of each section as they conclude their individual accounts. And the terminology is uh, used in ancient Babylonian tablets as well, which probably was the original source of this section, a tablet of some sort. The terminology of ancient Babylonian tablets confirms this practice. Each of the patriarchs kept the narrative and their records of each of their own generations. That's how we get the book of Genesis. To say it's prehistoric is wrong. It is ancient history recorded by those who witnessed it with the exception of the first Toledoth, obviously, because that was recorded by God and given to mankind. Each of these individuals, they would have inscribed them on stone or clay tablets and then appended their name at the end. So one of the reasons people don't trust the book of Genesis, at least the first 11 chapters, is because they say, well, nothing was written down. Well, that's not true. The culture of Babylon proves that. And in addition to that, if it was written in stone, it must have lasted a lot longer than papyrus or some other writing 
that might have been recorded and preserved. See, I'm giving you this information so you can trust the Word of God. I hope you trust the Word of God. Do you trust the Word of God? Um, This is just the information so you know that you're right in trusting the Word of God. Afterwards, each individual gave the tablets to the next, the next in line, and they continued the narrative. And so the history was recorded from the beginning of time right down through to Moses. And then Moses compiled all of it, recorded it, and presented it to the Jews who have preserved it faithfully until this day. These tablets eventually came down to Moses. He wrote the last section of the book of Genesis, obviously, uh, having received the information uh, for the final narrative from the sons of Jacob. We read about that in Exodus chapter 1. So then he organizes and edits all the original narratives under divine inspiration, because God chose him to do so. And so the result was that the entire collection finally became the first of the five books of Moses. All right, so now you know the textual critic argument for the book of Genesis and why it can be trusted. One of the things I want to mention before we close in worship is that when you look at the ancient culture of Babylon, one of the earliest uh, cultures that existed on the planet, Sumerian Babylon, Middle Eastern culture at that time, uh, the creation stories that made it their way into Babylon are very interesting. They're strikingly similar to the creation hymn of Genesis. Now, why would they be? Well, because it's true. And as the source was maybe copied and passed on through oral tradition, it changed over time. But when you go back to the earliest recorded cultures that we do have the information from, here's what you find. That the epics of creation in various forms were circulated before the time of Abraham. They were. Tablets have been found in Babylon, Nineveh, Nippur, Asher, some of the most ancient cities on our planet. They contain seven tablets or epics, notice, seven tablets or epics of creation, with the following similarities. In the beginning, there's a primeval abyss. There's a chaos of waters, and they're called the deep. In their understanding, a pagan polytheistic culture, the gods formed all things and made the upper and the lower expanses, which is language from the book of Genesis. They established the heavens and the earth. They ordained the stars all on the fourth day. They made the grass and the green herbs to grow. They made the beasts of the field and the cattle and all the living things, incidentally, on the sixth day. They formed man out of the dust of the ground and they became living creatures. Man with wife they dwelt, is a literal translation from these tablets, and companions they were. They were in a garden. A garden was their dwelling, and clothing they knew not. The seventh day was appointed a holy day to cease from all business, and that was commanded. Can you not see that what happened in the ancient Babylonian culture is they had access to the written word of God, but over time, cultures turned to polytheism, that is, worshiping many gods instead of one, and so they changed the creation account to accommodate their culture, which is what we're doing today. So we are no better than Babylon. When we say that God created the heavens and the earth over millions and millions of years or billions of years, when we change that account, we are no better than Babylon. I think you understand from our study in the book of Revelation that being compared as a culture to Babylon is not a good thing. These stories are all grossly polytheistic, but they're similar enough to contain a common origin. 
Now, the Bible teaches that mankind started out monotheistic, and he degraded into polytheism. Anthropology, or the study of mankind, contradicts this. They teach that there was a gradual development toward monotheism, that mankind started out polytheistic. But what actually happened is the obvious. He started out monotheistic, turned away from God through sin, became polytheistic, and now through Jesus Christ and through his word, mankind can turn back to worshiping one God. Amen? The earliest Babylonian inscriptions suggest that man's first religion was, in fact, monotheistic. Now, I'm not saying you can trust those Babylonian tablets, but you can trust that they're based on something that's true, and they're so close that it would tell us the truth, the truth of God's word. So we've learned two things today, two very important things as I ask the worship team to come up. The first is that we need to rest. And isn't it good when you rest? Hey, by the way, there's a lot of people that like, they'll work seven days a week all year, and then when they take their vacation, they rest. So it's this idea that like, well, I, I, I rest, you know, some people actually say, oh, I'll rest when I'm dead. And you will. Probably not a good strategy, but if, if you're going to go through the year killing yourself, and then you take your vacation, like, oh, finally I get to rest, you're not following God's order either. Now, vacations are good things. Amen? Can I hear an amen? But a day of rest is better. We learned that, the importance of that day of rest, the Sabbath, regardless of the day. And we've also learned that God's word can be trusted. I'm going to read that scripture again, the scripture that I think we need to be reminded of in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, Heavenly Father, the yoke is that steering device. When we put ourselves under your control and give our lives to you, there's very little room for interpretation in terms of whether or not we should obey your word. Give us the strength and the faith to obey this principle in our hearts as you lead us as the Sabbath was made for us, in a way that we're blessed and we know we can trust you. And just like they gathered the manna in the wilderness six days a week and you blessed them with twice as much on the sixth day so that the seventh day they would have what they need, help us to learn this principle of trusting you with a day off. Lord God, we know that that Sabbath represents eternity, an eternity that we will spend with you if we give our hearts and our lives to you. We acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior who came, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. That you ever live to make intercession on our behalf and that you are coming again to judge the living and the dead, to set up that Sabbath kingdom forever and ever and ever. Lord, may we acknowledge you as our Savior. May we be blessed to have that relationship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.